Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. We talk about oil here on this podcast, and we talk about diesel, and we note always that the podcast name comes from the fact that you need to drill for oil in order to get oil. We also drill deep with our guest of the week. We stayed in-house for this one. Greg Miller of Freight Waves is here to talk about the state of the ports in the U.S., particularly the West Coast. You know, people sometimes have short attention spans, and the craziness of the port backlog of just a few months ago has eased somewhat. But by how much? And what does that hold for the future? Greg will be here in a minute to discuss. Okay, I'm recording this on Thursday. The price of diesel on the futures market at the CME went up today by more than 30 cents a gallon. It's the second biggest one-day increase in the futures price of diesel. To find the biggest one, you have to go all the way back to last Tuesday when it went up by more than 51 cents. I feel sorry for you if you're trying to keep up with this and you're not in the oil market full time. It must be dizzying. I've been watching oil markets for more than 35 years and it's confusing me too. Well, most of the listeners, what, what most of the listeners of Drilling Deep want to know is what this all means for the retail price of diesel. Not just that the futures price is higher and then lower and then higher and then lower, but that wholesale prices follow suit too. So let's review the processes that get the market to that final price that's on the pump. The basic building block for retail diesel prices is the futures price, traded on the CME Commodity Exchange. It happens every day, five days per week. And in physical markets, there's trade for diesel on a pipeline or on a barge or a cargo. It is traded as a differential to that CME diesel price. That differential is usually measured in just a few cents per gallon. From there, suppliers of wholesale diesel will set a daily price. Or maybe they'll do it two times a day if the market is particularly volatile. I don't have all the records, but I'm guessing in recent days they've, they've gone in for two changes a day on many, many occasions. That wholesale price will be set on the basis of a lot of inputs, but the price in the nearest major spot market is the most important. So if Exxon is setting a wholesale price in Atlanta, it will look to the spot physical price in Houston as its basis. If they're setting a price in Milwaukee, they look at the Chicago market. There are five key spot markets in the U.S., and every wholesale price looks to one of them as their key number to, to build upon. Besides Houston and Chicago, they are New York, the West Coast, and a Midwest area known as Group 3. Here's where pricing gets misinterpreted. Those wholesale prices stay in line with the moves in the physical market. So if the physical market plunges 20 cents in a day, as has been the case of late, also go up 20 cents a day, you can expect that the wholesale market will move by about that amount. What's driving a lot of consumers crazy is that before the big surge Thursday, they'd been hearing that prices were coming down on the futures market, and indeed they were. Even with that increase on Thursday, the futures price of diesel was still more than $1 a gallon below its high level of last Tuesday. So why wasn't the retail price coming down? Retail prices actually have done a, come down a little bit. Our data in sonar has them down about $0.04 cents per gallon as of Thursday from last Friday. Pump prices for Pilot Flying J are available online, and they were down about $0.06 cents as of Wednesday. But why not more? That they were not down further caught the attention of President Biden, who sent out a tweet about it. But as we've noted here, the oil companies who were the targets of the Biden tweet actually had lowered their prices on the wholesale level. And after that, they're pretty much done. Stations are rarely owned by big oil companies anymore. They're owned by franchise holders who have an agreement to sell nothing but, for example, Exxon gasoline under the Exxon brand. 
And these station owners set their own prices. The oil companies do not. And those owners, yes, are slow to move prices down. That's not new. But they aren't going to drop their prices 50 cents in a day because the futures market dropped that much. Yes, their wholesale prices may have declined by that much also, but nobody can successfully operate a retail business with those sorts of wild swings in the retail price of their major product. That's why all these estimates of how long it takes commodity market swings to make it to the pump are so worthless. Retail prices are going to move with trends in the spot and wholesale markets. And if anybody can tell me the trend right now, I'd love to hear it. Is it higher? Well, why is the futures price of diesel a dollar below its all-time high? Is it lower? Well, then why did it have its second biggest one-day gain on Thursday? So if you need to take anything away from this as a consumer, here's what I would say. Don't blame the oil companies because their wholesale prices do move with the broader market. Don't blame the retailers because in some cases, he or she is a small business owner and can't possibly operate with massive swings in their retail prices. They might be making great money right now, but they weren't just a few weeks ago. It all tends to balance out over time. Just try to understand the dynamics of the market and stay away from people trying to tell you that what's going on is the fault of an individual politician. If there's any politician at fault here, it's Vladimir Putin, because his actions are probably going to take 3 million barrels per day off the global market. That's a huge amount. Ultimately, that's the real cause of this craziness. We're going to move on now on Drilling Deep. It's always fun to have one of my colleagues on the podcast, and we are joined today by shipping expert and senior editor at FreightWaves, Greg Miller. Greg has been covering the chaos on the West Coast ports and the impact on other U.S. ports since it began. With so many other things that have happened in the world, it almost seems like yesterday's news. So I thought it would be a good idea to have Greg join us here on Drilling Deep and bring us up to speed. So, Greg, welcome to Drilling Deep. You've been here before. It's good to have you back. Yeah, it's been a while. Thanks for having me. So much going on. So I'm kind of reminded of the famous line in Animal House, over. It isn't over until we say it's over. So how far on the road to over are we in returning to normal on the West Coast? Uh, We're we're not even close to over. I mean, uh, if you look back uh, in the normal, uh, the normal number of container ships waiting to get into LA, LB is zero. Uh, The second half of 2020, we had work from home, we had stimulus, we had... uh, lack of spending on travel. And so the congestion started to increase. And so in the first quarter of 2021, if you remember that crazy U.S. Coast Guard helicopter flyover video of all the ships waiting off LALB, it became this big thing. Uh, And, uh, you know, people had never seen anything like it. It peaked in the first quarter of last year at 40 uh, on February 1st. And then it seasonally slid down through the spring uh, going to about nine container ships waiting in mid-June. And that was not just because of seasonal issues, because also, if you remember, the port of Yantian in China uh, was closed in June uh, due to COVID, and we'll come back to that. Uh, but then right after that, uh, it shot up again. Uh, so Yantian opened, all that uh, uh, cargo that was delayed arrived. We had the holiday season stuff. And so through the second half of last year, the congestion increased and increased, peaked at 109 uh, on January 9th of this year. And then since February, uh, it has been falling rapidly. Um, And as of this Monday, we were down all the way to uh, 43 container ships, which is is pretty low compared to where we were. So it is getting better. Right. So 43 is pretty low compared to 109, but still a lot higher than zero, which, as you said, was the norm prior to this crisis. 
Yeah, and it's gotten better uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, first off, if you think about it, in the second half of last year, there was a lot of sort of smaller carriers, one-off carriers that were uh, in, uh, get, making a lot of money off uh, Christmas goods. And, and a lot of those ships are gone uh, for now. Uh, and then the usual, the larger traditional liners uh, pull back on services for Lunar New Year. So we have seen a reduction uh, in the number of services coming into LALB now. So that makes sense that the anchorage uh, is lower. Uh, the other reason is that there's so many, uh, um, so much cargo that's going to other ports now. Uh, it's not just LALB anymore. You have, you have uh, you know, huge pileups now, you know, off New York, New Jersey. In the beginning of this week, there was 11 ships. Uh, we had 11 off Virginia. Uh, 24 off Charleston, 14 off Oakland, and then another big place is uh, 19 off of Vancouver, Canada. Uh, and and then the third reason it's get, gotten in better is uh, L, the ports, LALB, seem to be doing a better job of moving the, the containers. The velocity is better. Uh, they have more space to work with. And so they're doing a better job of unloading ships. Uh, and there's, there's less sh- ships coming into the queue in LALB. So it makes sense. It looks like it's getting better, but uh, things could change. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's sort of ironic that uh, you know the, these the, these problems have kind of spilled over to these other air areas. And I wonder, um, is this going to have a long term impact on the East Coast ports, the other West Coast ports? Do you think that they're getting like a permanent boost that companies are going to maybe route themselves, shippers are going to maybe route themselves more to those places, or is this just a you know, the, the, the LAL, LALB has such a massive advantage, no canal, you know, extensive rail network. Is this just a temporary good times for these other ports? Actually, I kind of look at it uh, the other way around. And, uh, you know, Emmett Marutra at Deutsche Bank, who you know as well, uh, also looks at it the other way around. And, you know, the way we've talked about it is, in fact, uh, if you think about before COVID, uh, it was actually a secular shift from the West Coast to the East Coast. Uh, and, uh, you know, the reason being is there's just, you know, most of the, po- you know, the majority of the population of the country uh, is better served by the Eastern Gulf Coast. It's over there. And so, you know, you mentioned the canal. The canal uh, uh, opening of the expanded canal in June of 2016, you know, really kicked things off. And then you had a lot of, of these dredging projects uh, on the East Coast uh, and Gulf Coast ports, which allowed for larger ships. So before COVID hit, it really was looking even better uh, for the eastern Gulf coasts. And it, it almost seems like the COVID situation, especially the beginning, was a bit of a, was a, it, it's a bit of, that's the blip. I mean, it's, there was this idea at the height of this, uh, there was this scramble to get uh, containers in. And there was this idea, which is true if you're in a premium service, that it is shorter to go to the West Coast. Um, but I, you know, I think, you know, as, it, as things normalize, Actually, it, it 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 probably will go back, uh, you know, towards this secular shift, towards the eastern Gulf Coast. Uh, but again, you know, this, you know, it all depends upon what what's happening next. And uh, you know, there's some things that are about to happen that could change the equation in a lot of different ways. Yeah. So let's let's go back to a story that you recently wrote for Freight Waves. The headline was: "Is this the calm before California ports next cargo storm?" So, what do you think might be creating the potential for another storm? Yeah, and I, you know, I, now that I think about that headline, it's definitely not calm in California right now. Uh, they're still, you know, at record levels, but from a supply chain constraints level, uh, there is a bit of a calm here. But you know, what I see ahead is, you know, I talked before about the deployments going down around Lunar New Year. Uh, 
and seasonally. And Sea Intelligence, which is a consultancy out of Copenhagen, analyzes these schedules, and they saw this huge drop that's lowering the um, uh, that's lowering the queue right now. But what they also see is that the liner schedules are about to pop up uh, again. So, uh, you know, the number of ships going to be deployed in Asia West Coast is going to be jumping in April, the arrivals, and it's going to be jumping even more in May. So you have post-Lunar New Year sailings on this trade up 20% from pre-COVID. So that's that's problem number one. Uh, the other problem is these lockdowns we have in, in Shenzhen right now, uh, which is where the Yantian port was. And remember what happened last June uh, when there was a, a slowdown in China, it creates a nice lull for the ports over here, but you pay for it later uh, because all that cargo comes back and you have a bullwhip effect. And so I think the jury is still out as of today about what's going to happen in Shenzhen. Is this going to be another situation as bad as the Yantian port closure last year? Or is this going to be sort of a nothing burger like that whole uh, power outage thing we talked about last fall? And then, you know, on top of all that, you have normal inventory restocking, inventory to sales ratio still historically low. You have peak season coming yet again. Uh, It usually should start in August, but last year it started in June. And then, on top of everything else, we have this whole risk of, uh, you know, the West Coast port labor negotiations, which is a huge variable. All right, let, let's come back to that in a minute. But what do you think the ports have done to get ready for the next surge? If the next surge is kind of right around the corner, what steps have they taken? I know, you know, they were they proposed that dwell fee, and uh, I'm on the mailing list. And you, of course, you always write about it. The dwell fee has been postponed yet again. I, I don't know how many times has it been postponed, right? Probably about a dozen. Uh, what do you think the are, are the ports in better shape, better preparedness for this time rather than last time? Well, the ports would say it's not really their fault. Of course, they're you know they're going to be blaming uh, you know uh, you know issues with trucking, and they're going to be also blaming issues with warehouse labor, uh, and and to a certain extent, uh, you know it's there, there was a I, I did an interview with uh, Flexport chief economist Phil Levy and. He talked about the different theories on this, and he said that you know one of it, one of them is it's just ext- extended elevated demand, and that's just the way it is. We've exceeded the capacity of the system, and that's just the way it is. And then there's the other theory that there's something you can do about it. What he called the who, who forgot to flip the switch theory, and I think when you talk about the government getting involved, it's sort of unacce- it's, it's understandable that the government, the federal government, is trying to find solutions. Uh, it, it's just a bad political uh, strategy to say there's nothing we can do about it. It's just, a, you know, it's just, it is the way it is. So they're going to try to do something and some of it, uh, you know, it, it, and that's a good thing. But it, I think that there's only so much they can do. It's just on the fringes and a lot of it's just for appearance. So I, I don't know to what extent they're that much better prepared for the next port, uh, the next surge. I tend to fall in the camp of uh, you know, I'm sorry, it is what it is. And, uh, you know, there's nothing we can do about it until the demand declines. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's notable given the fact that they have kind of found other outlets, as you pointed out, and whether in the U.S. or not, Vancouver being one of them or the East Coast. And yet they're still kind of jammed up, or at least you, you, you see the prospect of them being jammed up. So you know, if, if it wasn't for these other ports, where would we be? Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Any particular port that you think is kind of benefited the most that will, I know you said you feel like, uh, you know, we, we may be going back to a situation where these other alternative ports uh, are, are more permanently elevated. Which ones do you think benefit the most? You know, it's hard to pick a winner. Uh, they, they're all reporting, they're all reporting uh, record, you know, record throughput. They're all seeing throughput now 
that they expected to see five years from now. So, you know, I think the answer is, you know, everyone. Yeah, the question really becomes at what point do have people bought enough stuff and they'll stop buying stuff and the numbers will drop just on the basis of that? I, I really don't know. But do you have any thoughts on that? You know, I think uh, this has come up, uh, you know, just to change the subject a bit, uh, this has really come up uh, recently with, with the, you know, the geo- geopolitical situation. Um, you know, we, we are, we're, you know, this, this is, you know, 2022 is not the same as 2021. It does, I think, all depend upon uh, consumer demand. And we do not have, you know, really the same level of, we don't have the government stimulus uh, juicing uh, consumption this year, like we did last year, and we have we have a major geopolitical event unfolding right now. Uh, and you know, the inflation started well before this, but uh, you know, this you know has the potential to accelerate it. And you have to ask, uh, you know, could this you know you know be the straw here? And uh, you know, sooner or later, you know, we are going to stop spending all this money. There's only so many things you need for your house. Um, and you know, that's, what's going to do it. You know, once that consumption goes down, then the queues go down, then those ship, the ship capacity gets released into the market. And suddenly there's a lot more ships that are available to chase an even lower and lower amount of goods. And then the freight rates go down. Let's talk talk about the, let's talk about the rates themselves and the profitability that they have yielded. And, uh, can you give a couple of base numbers on how much rates have, have risen? I mean, before COVID, you know, you were talking about rates of, you know, whatever, you know, one, two, three thousand per per forty foot equivalent unit, and 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 since COVID, we've had situations where we were, you know, with premiums, you know, at twenty thousand. Of course, it depends upon the market, but uh, you know, it's just an incredible money making machine for the carriers. Uh, you know, that their their whole goal uh, right now to make money is they need uh, as many ships. Uh, in as many containers as possible right now, because it doesn't matter what it costs to, to buy the ships. It doesn't matter what it costs to lease the ships, uh, at least for the next couple of years. Uh, and it doesn't matter what it costs to buy or lease the containers. The more capacity you can get right now, the more money you can make because your cost basis is so small compared to this incredible return you're getting on the freight rates, which is why you see you know, these carriers you know, reporting, you know, multi-billion dollar annual results. So that's, that's the goal. Uh, you know, the rates have come up incredibly. Uh, the expectation is that someday, of course, the spot rates are going to come down, you know, probably in the second half of this year. But remember, there's also contract rates and contract rates are being negotiated, uh, you know, for, for this year and for coming years, you know, on multi-year, contra- on multi-year deals at rates that are way, way above where they used to be. Um, so, you know, it's just an incredible time uh, for the container lines and, you know, unfortunately a terrible time for shippers when it comes to their margins. How easy is it to add capacity in ocean shipping? Obviously in trucking, uh, you can buy used vehicles, you can have people get their own authority and get their their CDL, et cetera. Uh, Shipping, I would imagine capacity additions are a little more complicated than in trucking. But you kind of hinted just in what your your previous answer that they're finding a way to bring on more capacity. Uh, How are they doing? Yeah, some are, not everyone is. I mean, there's different strategies. Like, for example, uh, there's, there's um, if you want to order ships, that's going to take a year and a half or two years. And most of the new ships are, co- are not going to be coming online till 2023, 2024. So you can't add new capacity that way. Uh, and the other problem is, is that all this congestion we talked about, 
Uh, that's actually essentially subtracting capacity from the market because if your ship is stuck there for 30 days, you know, off uh, Baja, then it's not being able to do anything. So what, what they're doing is they're trying to find capacity that's already existing in the market. So for example, old ships, you know, old rust buckets, things that normally would be, uh, you know, gone to the scrappers right now, they'll buy them uh, for, you know, outrageous sums uh, because they can pay off the ship in a short period of time. So you have very aggressive buyers in the market. For example, people like uh, Mediterranean Shipping Cruises, which has bought more ships than anyone else in history. So they're buying up everything. And then you can charter in ships. Uh, you know, So companies like Zim uh, have been aggressively chartering in ships. The problem there is that to charter in ships now, you need to charter them for three or five years uh, or, or else you won't get the deal. So, uh, you know, the thinking is, is you'll make so much money in year one or two that you can afford to take a bath and, you know, at the tail end there uh, because the freight rates are so good. But there is that risk. So that's how they're doing it. And then there's other companies that have a completely different approach. I would say Maersk. Maersk has not increased its capacity that much at all this year. I mean, it's it's up, you know, in the, in the low single digits. I'm sorry, last year. And so what they're doing instead is they're taking a totally, a much more longer term approach and they're focusing on, you know, getting people to sign contracts of three, four, ten years. And so they're looking to, to lock in a long-term uh, cash flows, and they're looking to sell, use this crisis to say, hey, if you want to do business with us, you're not only going to have to sign a long-term contract, but we want you to buy all these other logistic services. So they're trying to be more than a commoditized uh, supplier of capacity. And, you know, time will tell. Uh, they, you know, they may be the smart ones and the people that you know, went for the for the easy money, uh, you know, in 2021 and 22, you know, it'll be interesting to see what what's happening to them in 2024. You've talked pretty consistently here about the profitability. And I know you've written a few stories uh, about the price of bunker fuel, which is the fuel that makes ships go. Uh, I would imagine if the bunk, price of bunker fuel was significantly cutting into profitability, you wouldn't have mentioned it and you haven't, which I guess means that the equation of, you know, profitability of shipping versus, the sort of deficit that uh, higher fuel costs are, are having or, you know, it's, it's, it's a hit, but it's not that big a hit. Yeah. So what happened recently was the, the, the price of, uh, you know, I'm speaking of very low sulfur fuel oil, the, the VLSFO, the, which is still the, you know, the, the predominant, uh, you know, fuel use in container shipping, except on the very, very big ships doing the, the long haul runs. Uh, that, that peaked, uh, you know, according to Ship and Bunker at about uh, just over a thousand per ton on March 9th, which is, you know, insane. It's never been, you know, over 750 before. Well, I mean, even going back to the old fuel, HSFO, it's never been anywhere close to that. Uh, and it's come back, of course, with, you know, it it, it comes back with a lag. It, it rises as fast as oil does and, and, and will decline slower than oil does. So it's back down, but it's still very, very high, around 878 yesterday. But the thing is, uh, from a container line perspective, they just pass this stuff along. So on their contracts, they'll have a quarterly bunker adjustment factor. And I think Marisk, I'm sorry, MSC just went to every two weeks. And they can use an emergency bunker fuel surcharge. Uh, and they can incorporate that into the spot rate, um, you know, assuming that the spot rates stay high. Now, if the spot rates were, some, were to collapse in the second half of last year, then that raises the question if bunker fuel stays high, you know, how they're going to compensate for that. But if you look at the big picture of these incredible, uh, you know, it sort of reminds me of when I was talking about the sort of the charter rates that they're they're willing to accept no matter how high they are or the, the acquisition costs for ships. It's just a drop in a bucket. 
uh, these costs compared to what they're getting on the on 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 the freight. So even to the extent that they cannot get it back from the shippers, and it looks like they can, to the extent they can't, it's okay because they're going to yeah, they'll make a fortune. Yeah, you mentioned going from four weeks to two weeks. I mean, in this market, two weeks seems like two years, given how fast the price of fuel is changing. But uh, anyway, so that's yeah. But what they do, what they also do though, is you know, okay, they'll 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 be on a lag. So in the first couple quarters, that they're going to take more of more of a hit uh, on their because they're not going to be able to be compensated for their bunker costs. But uh, they're they're going to lower their bunker adjustment factors slower in the end. So they'll still get the shippers on the tail end, and they'll make up for it. Let's go back. We've got time for one final question. You did make reference to the labor negotiations with the ILWU on the West Coast. What's the calendar for those? Uh, the calendar, Gene uh, uh, um, Soroka, the executive director of the Port of Los Angeles, who's not a party to the negotiations, uh, but you know is aware of what's going on, talked about this on the in the press conference uh, the other day. And you know he he said that you know the the way this is going to work is that the uh, you know the the seasoned negotiating teams on on both uh, the uh, employer side and the ILWU will sit sit down at the beginning of May, and they'll start their they'll start their negotiations. The contract um, ends at the end of June, and he said that it, it's you know there's a fair a fairly good expectation that the negotiations will not be done by the end of June. But the point being is that it's not like on July 1st, it all stops. They'll just keep talking. And, um, you know, there's obviously a lot of pressure (laughs) this year more than ever uh, to ensure that there's no uh, any sort of slowdown or stoppage or lockout or what have you. So that's what the schedule is. Who knows what's going to happen? I would imagine, given the money that these uh, shipping companies have made, is that the union is going to come in and be looking for some pretty big numbers. I would think so. Uh, and 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 also, um, uh, going back to what uh, you know, we were talking about before, about this whole idea of, you know, right now is, is an epic peak. And the more capacity you have in the market, the more containers, the more bo- the ships, the more sailings you can do, the more you can take advantage of these freight rates, which again, you know, may not exist forever. They could disappear fairly quickly if we have, uh, you know, sort of a sudden economic issue here in the United States. So it makes sense that the last thing that carriers would want to do would be to in any way slow down uh, the volumes going into LALB because, you know, uh, what they what they pay extra to the ILWU, they could make even more uh, from the shippers. All right, great. We want to thank our my colleague, Greg Miller. He's a senior editor of Freightwaves and a shipping, I want to say a shipping expert, the shipping expert uh, who's joined us here today on Drilling Deep. Greg, we've had you before. We'll have you again. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the FreightCast family of podcasts from Freightwaves. You can find us on all the leading podcast platforms. I've been your host, John Kingston, and please join us again.